With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. Uh, I'm your uh, host, Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. of Israel, and of course this was a pseudomigraph, uh, he didn't write it, here's the incarnation of God, why right? the specific this number, amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek, the Bible, Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert Price, Price, host the Bible Geek. Hey, uh, you got time for a quick Bible geek? Let's hope so, because I happen to. Let's tackle some of these questions, but first I'd like to express my profound uh, sorrow and regret at the news of the death of uh, Philip Davies, one of the major Old Testament minimalists and a heck of a great guy. I was very pleased to have some contact with him. I, I have met him, but uh, mainly corresponded with him. And uh, he, uh, toward the end of his life, was kind of opening up to Jesus' mythicism since it is a direct extension of uh, his approach to the Old Testament, which I embrace. He has a uh, an invited response to my uh, book, Moses and Minimalism, that's included as an appendix. Uh, he His book, uh, if you want to read uh, one uh, book on minimalism, read his um, uh in Search of Ancient Israel, really striking insights. So, so sorry to, to have him gone, both as a person as an, and as an important uh, biblical scholar. It really gets me when we lose people like him and Richard Pervo and uh, J. Duncan M. Derrett. They're really irreplaceable. I mean, the incredible learning these these people have, it's uh, just uh, the tragedy. Um, but uh, let's see. Uh, from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, let me uh, shamelessly... Uh, push uh, my uh, new book, uh, Holy Fable, Volume 3, The Epistles and the Apocalypse, Undistorted by Faith. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, and I hope you will get it on Amazon. There's other books I've uh, edited, like um, The Ground of Being, Selected Essays, I should say Neglected Essays of Paul Tillich, and uh, some other goodies. Um, 
Uh, let's see. Uh, but let's let's do get on to some some questions. This is from our buddy Luther. Uh, mo- much of what you've said on the Bible geek about Persian influences on Judaism and some differences between history and biblical stories from the exile period, as well as the understanding that I needed to learn more about pre-Christian history to understand Christian history, piqued my interest in expanding my reading list. As an aside, I noticed that my list of things to read grows faster than my list of things I've read. You know, I know just what you mean. I'm looking at a couple of huge stacks of books that I'm going to need to read in preparation for the the next two books I want to write, namely um, Christ Mythicism and Gospel Christology and Judaizing Jesus. And uh, boy, oh boy, it's going to be fun reading it. Uh, but there is sure a lot to it. But what the heck? Okay. Um uh, see why? Okay, back to Luther. While reading Judaism in Persia's Shadow by John L. Berquist, it's John, just J O N, and Berquist is B E R Q U I S T. Uh, a simple sentence I'd have taken for granted struck me and raised the following question for you. Berquist says, uh, In 722 BCE, when Assyria conquered Israel, Israel and Judah had existed as separate nations for just over two centuries. It occurred to me that Sunday school stories notwithstanding, I'm not sure I've ever read anything indicating that there truly was a unified nation before the Rehoboam era split into uh, Israel and Judah. From what I recall reading, the first evidence of any historical figures comes from maybe halfway between the maybe mythical split and the Assyrian conquest. I know you've said David and Solomon seem to be more legend than real, and that there was probably never any kingdom approaching the grandeur spoken of in the Old Testament, but do you think Israel and Judah were a single nation at some point that split, or were they always separate nations? Uh, The latter. Yeah, from what I've read from Thomas L. Thompson, Philip R. Davies, uh, uh, Niels Peter Lemke, and these great um, minimalists, the archaeological evidence does not seem to back that up. Uh, It it may be, I I guess you could say it's possible that um, uh, Josiah had... uh, briefly taken a uh, hunk of Judah, and and it may be that the notion of a united kingdom came about as a kind of a fictive, retroactive pedigree for that, but they're, they're really, I mean, uh, uh, Judah doesn't even seem to have been a kingdom uh, for a long, long time in biblical times. It was just sort of a distribution system for uh, olive oil that was a major crop there. But yeah, I I don't think they ever were uh, together. Uh, So yeah, uh, shorter than your question, uh, which is unusual for a big mouth like me. But yeah, I think your suspicions are correct. Uh, There were uh, not, uh, they're not parts of a particular United Kingdom. 
Let's see. Hello from Acapulco, J. I apologize for my horrible writing style. I don't have the ability to put my thoughts on paper very well. But here goes. Does the Bible refer to ancient catastrophes that happened approximately 13,000 and 12,000 years ago? The catastrophe uh, was two impacts by remnants of a comet a thousand years apart. The oldest impact struck the Canadian ice sheet, broke up the mile-high ice sheet. Uh, The heat melted much of the ice and sent it flowing south over the northwest of America. The ice sheet covered an area larger than Canada and part of America down to Minnesota. A mile to two miles deep, it was partially melted, and the flow consisted of icebergs, rocks, boulders, and huge amounts of water so big as to be unimaginable. Imagine Niagara Falls times 1,000. It scarred the land and deposited boulders and rocks in its wake. The firestorm that accompanied this impact covered North America, Greenland, Iceland, and Northern Europe. This lay down a black layer of ash and minerals that is distinct in the geological record of sedimentation. A layer of soot blanketed the earth and caused an ice age. So so much fresh water was dumped in the Atlantic that the rotation cycle stopped. The second impact caused the water level in the oceans to rise 400 feet. Most of the settlements near the shores were flooded, wiped out by a tsunami hundreds of or thousands of feet high. It created the islands of Indonesia, which was a continent formerly, and attached to Malaysia and Thailand. These islands we now see are the highlands of that continent. Hmm, would that have been Lemuria? I wonder. The end of the megafauna, mammoths, uh, saber-toothed tigers, giant sloths, huge bears, and the giant beaver, were doomed. The impact turned the land to thousands of miles of wet bog. The vegetation was burnt, no environment left. It was this that killed all the megafauna, not little humans with rocks and sticks. Hunter-gatherers do not kill their prey to extinction. They have a reverence for the animals they kill, totem clans and stuff of it. Now, my question is, does the Bible refer to this ancient catastrophe? First and foremost, the flood story, and a flood story exists in so many cultures in all parts of the world. The second impact flooded North Africa and the pyramids at Giza. It is theorized that the waters stripped the granite face stones from the pyramids there, and the water level is seen by the stones left at the very top. This is controversial, as Egypt Egyptologists say the pyramids are less than 6,000 years old. Uh, Here are two quotes that sound like a reference to the impacts, and I ask if you know any more that refer to these impacts. These impacts that wiped out the large animals and exterminated 80% of the people. Revelation 21 Uh, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, uh, saying, 
Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And Ezekiel 38.20 So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth, which is why we call them creeping things, and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down in the deep uh, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I don't think that uh, that either of these really refer to a, an event so ancient. I wonder if uh, the biblical writers would even be aware that they had happened. I mean, how do we know about it? Through geology and stuff that they knew nothing about. And uh, floods and all that. I mean, you know, they're happening all the time. Um, the flood story itself needn't refer to that. Uh, it's... Uh, I mean, the the, um, the fact that the flood stories all over the world, almost all of them are from uh, cities or settlements on river banks, uh, would imply that the uh, stories are not related, that it's just the kind of thing you're going to get when uh, people in these locations repeat and enlarge stories of f devastating floods that destroyed their little worlds. So uh, it seems to me unlikely. This, uh, In fact, uh, Ezekiel and uh, um, Revelation both seem to be referring to uh, anticipated disasters of the future. Now, you could say, well, yeah, but they, they reflect this awful one, uh, one or two in the past. But again, would they even have been able to know about that? So I kind of doubt it. Uh, it's, it's conceivable, I guess, but I'm not sure, again, how the biblical writers would even have known about these things. But, uh, uh, Jay, you, you certainly do not have a problem making yourself understood. Uh, don't, uh, don't minimize your uh, verbal abilities. Yuki, uh, great bodhisattva of geekdom. Uh, this is from Matt in Knoxville. Knowing the high value you clearly place upon humor, I'm wondering if you might comment on humor both in terms of the biblical text and in the context of a life well lived. I've always found the Christian scriptures to be relatively humorless. And just as I've gravitated to your work, at least partly because of your great sense of humor, among the world's great religious texts, I'm particularly fond of Taoist teachings, such as those of Zhuangzi, uh, part because they are truly and deeply funny. But am I wrong about the Christian scriptures? Is there more humor there than most of us realize? Or is it possible that some of the canonical scriptures represent folk tales, wisdom sayings, and the like, that were actually quite humorous in their original form, but have had all the wit redacted right out of them? And what about uh, instances in scripture which you personally find unintentionally funny? Um, let's see, there goes my screen. Uh, yeah, okay, there we go. Uh, Let's see, uh, related to these questions, could you comment on your perspective on humor and a healthy sense of humor as an aspect of a life well lived? 
Uh, okay, uh, well, finally, a non-Bible geek-related question. Do you have a list of your books one can buy directly from you? Having bought one book that way, it occurred to me to do it as much as possible. Uh, thanks, Matt. I just have a couple of copies of Holy Fable, Volume 3. I think I don't have any more spare copies of Volume 2. I know I have none of Volume 1. I have uh, two or three copies of uh, Atheism and Faithism, a collection of essays, uh, still here. Uh, let's see, I have Biblical Buddhism, a lot of those. They haven't really been distributed yet. That's, I think, uh, 15 bucks, including postage and all that. It's a thin little book, but filled with nifty stuff. I've got a bunch of copies of um, uh, the symposium edited by myself and Frank Zindler called Bard Ehrman and the Quest for the Historical Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, then I've got a few copies still of my book, Bard Ehrman Interpreted. Uh, and uh, let's say any of these would be uh, 15 bucks, including postage. You can PayPal me the, the smackers at uh, criticus at AOL.com. Yeah, thanks. Okay, now humor. Well, I think humor is... Uh, is perhaps the highest faculty of human nature. And the reason for that is it, uh, it shows a, a perspective on oneself and on events, especially irony, that it, it shows a transcendence of mere circumstances and their pressures on us. Um, humor is when, when you can laugh at yourself, for instance, talking about a well-lived life, humility, uh, humor and humility fit together because that can prevent you from becoming a pompous ass. Uh, you don't want to take yourself too seriously. By the way, in my opinion, humility is not self-degradation uh, and abnegation. Uh, humility is compatible with a uh, keen awareness of the greatness of one's gifts, because humility is simply realism. It's absurd and stupid to say, oh, no, no, I, I'm really a no-talent bum. I'm really an ugly dwarf. I'm really this. Not. Come on. Uh, th there's no point in that. I mean, I if you are... Are, uh, limited in some way, well, that's it. That's you. What of it? Uh, might as well get used to it. Uh, but uh, to to uh, degrade and insult yourself, oh, I'm unworthy. Now, I doubt seriously that you are, right? You have to learn how to take compliments because humility is both um, being uh, realistic about your shortcomings and realistic about your uh, excellences. I mean, as uh, I like the way C.S. Lewis put it, for you to become conceited about your abilities, which are, I mean, you if, if you've developed them, you should be proud of that, but they probably come from some uh, trait or ability you were born with genetically, and that's like bragging about having red hair. 
of course, unless you dyed it uh, nice and red. But short of that, uh, or, oh, you know, I'm proud of these blue eyes I've got. What do you mean? You're, you, it's okay. I mean, it makes sense to say, boy, I really like them. I'm lucky. But to, to say, yep, yep, I'm uh, certainly better than you, that's just ludicrous. Uh, so the, there's a joke there, but the joke is on you. But to keep perspective on yourself, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. And, and there comes a point in maturity where you don't have to try to do that. It's not forced. It's not fake. You see the silliness of something you've done or the irony of the circumstances. And, uh, and it's just really funny, uh, genuinely funny. And, uh, I think that humor is, is a great part of, of the self-regulation of, of humility. Again, humility being a realistic assessment without shame or embarrassment on the one hand, without braggadocio and, and uh, conceit on the other. Uh, so um, that's uh, it seems to me that's the the uh, the relation of it and also the value of it for uh, a life well lived. Plus, you know, as Reader's Digest always said, laughter is the best medicine. Uh, I'm always cracking jokes. Uh, I admit most of them probably pretty terrible, uh, but I just love the humorous uh, reaction to life and its foibles and and also uh, mocking, that's really great, uh, because we're flooded with all kinds of stupidity and bad taste in advertising and politics, you name it, and uh, why not, I mean, you can see that, it, which is not inappropriate, but you can also laugh at how stupid it is, too. It's open season. Uh, that's a way of, uh, you know, not having rage uh, eat away at you. Um, how about in the Bible? There's more humor than one might think. I mean, I have a collection of passages I really find funny. One of them is in Proverbs, where it talks about the plight of the drunkard uh, who uh, wakes up uh, with a hangover and says, ah, how did I get here? Where, where do these bruises come from? <laughs> you're in a bar fight or something like that. Uh, and uh, you're nauseated. You feel like you're seasick, it says. And and what are you going to do? Well, drown your sorrows. Hair the dust that bit me, Lloyd, my man. Uh, I will, I, I will seek a, another drink. Uh, sort of like Otis Campbell in the Bible. That strikes me as genuinely funny. Uh, another one is Second Isaiah's lampoon of idolaters. Get a load of this guy. He goes out uh, into the forest, uh, chops down a the tree, and uh, he he. Uh, he has a log there. He chops it in half. One half he carefully sculpts and then plates with precious metal and uh, worships it. He's made an idol, an image, a god out of it. Can't do him any good. Can't answer his prayers. Can't even hear him. Uh, it's a total waste of time. What does he do with the other half of the log? He uses it for kindling and uh, warms up his soup with it. Half of the same piece of wood is kindling, and the other half is his god. And does anybody see anything wrong with this? Uh, similarly, I mean, in the same vein, uh, the story in Second uh, Kings, uh, no, First uh, Kings, yeah. 
with Elijah and his uh, contest with the prophets of Baal shows just uh, daring mockery where they're waiting for uh, Baal to send down fire from heaven to consume the offerings and, and not too surprisingly nothing happens and uh, so Elijah starts heckling. He says, hey, wh where is your God? Is he asleep maybe? Uh, is he stuck in the bathroom? Which uh, literally has he gone asleep? side, but that's what that means. Uh, and uh, uh, may maybe you can uh, shout louder and he'll uh, snap out of it. Uh, I mean, this is just plain mockery. Uh, that and the second Isaiah thing are just saying, you got to be kidding me. Uh, idolatry is so idiotic, you can't take it seriously. You have to uh, laugh at it. And indeed, I think that's true of some uh, theological and anti-theological arguments. They're so ridiculous, you, you mustn't take them seriously enough to show any respect, uh, because then you're, you're making them look better than they are, some of them. You just have to laugh off. Um, I guess my favorite uh, humorist in the Bible is, is the author of Acts, Luke, Polycarp, whatever, uh, there are just uh, passages there that I think uh, must be intentionally humorous. Uh, again, sort of self-satires on uh, religious self-deception. One of them is Eutychus, uh, where um, Paul is giving a goodbye sermon to a bunch of his followers. It's getting real late. It's the wee hours. They're on uh, second or third floor of this house, and uh, there's a bunch of lamps and candles burning. It's getting hot. Uh, naturally, people are going to get drowsy. Well, Paul goes on. Oh, on and on, as the author puts it. Finally, this kid sitting on the windowsill cannot stay awake and falls backwards out of the, the, the window. And Paul rushes downstairs and does the old Elijah trick, uh, stretching himself out on the body, the corpse, it's not quite clear, and then says, okay, his life is in him, uh, and he's okay, and so he goes back up and preaches some more. Well, that just has to be intended as a joke, that uh, Paul doesn't know when to shut the heck up, and this is what's liable to happen. Uh, okay, another one would be... Uh, well, my favorite is uh, the story, and I know you've heard this one from me before, uh, the story of uh, Peter's imprisonment by Herod Agrippa I. He's planning on killing him. He's already executed James, the son of Zebedee, and apparently that got pretty high ratings, so he decided he would uh, try it again with Peter. But uh, God, who apparently didn't really care that much for James, uh, he, he Peter's his favorite, so he decides to send an angel to uh, release Peter from his uh, his manacles and uh, slip him out past his his guards, and uh, and then he vanishes once he's got Peter safe out of the street. And Peter says, "Well, I was half thinking this was some sort of dream, but I guess it's not." Uh, and he says, "Well, uh, let me go tell the good news to my fans." And he knows where they're gathered. Uh, they're uh, they're praying for him. At, I think it's Mark's mother's house, and so he goes goes there and knocks on the door. Well, the, the whole group of them are praying for Peter's safe release, uh, and uh, their housemaid, uh, Rhoda, 
hears the knock and goes and opens the little window, I guess, or maybe cracks open the door and recognizes Peter. But she's so flabbergasted. uh, She's so flustered that she leaves the door shut. And it's probably locked because they're afraid of persecution. Um, And uh, so she runs to tell the other ones, you're not going to believe this at the door. It's Peter. And they say, what? You're crazy. Like, if anything, it must be his ghost, which means we're too late. He's dead. And his his angel, his guardian angel is, is visiting us to give us the news. Oh, darn. It doesn't even enter their minds that their prayers might have been answered, right? Uh, when they say, oh, Peter's right outside right now. Nah, it can't be. And, and that's ostensibly what they've just been praying for all night. I love that, right? It, it can't have escaped uh, the writer. Uh, these great prayer warriors they don't really believe anything's going to happen. I mean, they they like to tell themselves they do, and they're carried away with a pietism of, oh, what a good boy am I. But when it actually happens, doesn't even occur to them it might have happened. Now, I think that's pretty rib-tickling. Uh, and there are other uh, things here and there. Uh, some of the statements of uh, Jesus in Matthew 6 about the hypocrites are pretty darn funny, too. And uh, the, he describes them as giving to charity and having uh, a uh, uh, have, having a trumpeter announce it, hey, hey, everybody, look at this. I'm about to give to the poor. Now get out of here. Uh, and I think there is humor in the Bible. It's not like there's uh, a whole lot of it, but then the Bible is a pretty big book, and there are some really good examples of it here and there. I mean, given the subject matter, you, you wouldn't expect to find a whole lot of jokes, but uh, there are some. Now, does the Bible ever talk about people laughing? Well, yeah, but it's usually mockery, right? And they laughed him to scorn. There is something outside the Bible, however, that I find really refreshing in the Acts of John, a second century apocryphal Acts book. Um, John, son of Zebedee, is traveling with his disciples, I guess, on an evangelistic mission, and they, the only place they can find to spend the night is some flea bag uh, motel. Uh, and it really is a dump because when they're shown to the room, uh, it's swarming with bed bugs. And, uh, and John commands the bed bugs, uh, bed bugs uh, yield to the apostles of the Lord. And they all line up and and march out of the room, the bugs. Well, when he says this, but before the bugs leave, his companions laugh, just because it's funny that John would say this. Uh, It's not like they're laughing him to scorn. Like, I mean, you could read it that way. It's like the skepticism of a miracle story. But I get the impression reading it, it's just that they, it's a moment of levity. Yeah, what what do you expect in a place like this? But then they leave. And then in the morning, the bed bucks are bed bucks are all uh, lined up at the threshold of the room waiting to come back in. And John says, okay, come on back. And uh, and they leave. Uh, That is very refreshing to me where it's like innocent laughter uh, at at, uh, at least what they think is an innocent joke. 
so it's uh, I wish that were in the Bible, but there, there is good, uh, funny uh, stuff in the Bible, that's for sure. Uh, what I don't like is the old irony dodge where uh, a scholar sees something said by Jesus or whomever, and uh, they shouldn't be saying that according to the scholar's theology. And so he says they, they couldn't really mean it. They're being ironic. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. That's right. Which is why uh, the first time I was at the Jesus Seminar, I said, I'd like to make a proposal that uh, you add a fifth color. You know, there are these colored beads we would vote with. Um, if Jesus really certainly said the passage, the saying, if he truly said uh, this, then we would rate it. We'd vote on it and uh, rate it red. If there was some doubt, but it, it seemed likely enough, it'd get the pink vote. If it seemed like out of the question, obviously anachronistic or whatever, we'd give it a black vote. Somebody in the early church made it to you know, feather their own nest. If it seemed doubtful, but it, it could be genuine, it would get a gray. Well, I suggested purple uh, for uh, stuff that Jesus really did say, but he was just kidding. Like, you know, uh, give all you own to the poor. Just kidding. Uh, turn the other cheek. I had you go in there, didn't I? Uh, well, they never got around to it, but um, that would have been a mighty helpful thing. I know I've read a lot of scholars who would certainly uh, color things purple in the Gospels. Okay, Matt, sorry for that. Um, I know I'm taking the risk Paul did, uh, and I probably got a whole audience full of Eutychuses here. It's my fault. Um, let me see ya. Uh, this next is from our buddy Lachlan Christiante, the Vampire Predator. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, no, 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 wait a second. We've got two different ones. i got to split these up. Okay, the, the, that Lachlan is the next one. I'm sorry, I'll get back to him. Kelly Reichert says, I was listening to The Hinge podcast, a great 10-part series that attempts to settle a debate between an atheist and a Christian by going to the experts in certain fields. I believe that uh, I heard the voice of the great uh, Bible geek. The Christian claimed that the unique nature of the ideas presented in the Gospels is evidence that it is from God. I don't think they're talking about the mythological, but more the moral and philosophical. Love thy neighbor, forgive, uh, etc. What saith the geek? Um, okay, I think that's the, the end of the question. Uh, I'm not sure was I on that? I, I can't keep straight anymore. Um, but... Uh, I uh, don't think there is really much in the way of unheard of novelty uh, in in the Bible. In fact, anything that discontinuous with normal human wisdom would, I think, be hard to recognize as wisdom, if you see what I mean. Uh, if um, it said, 
oh, you shall uh, hate your friends and, and love your enemy. Well, I guess there are a couple of things kind of like that, but uh, oh, let's say, thou shalt walk on thy hands every other Thursday. I mean, what? Uh, I mean, stuff like this uh, that uh, you uh, or like the the Jainists and the Cathari have taught that if you really want enlightenment, you got to starve yourself to death. I would hear that and think, what the hell is this? I I don't buy it. Or, or some of the weird stuff in Gnosticism that's totally counterintuitive uh, and gratuitous in the sense that nothing could establish the truth of it. I, I think uh, you, you don't really find stuff like that in the Bible. Uh, it, even the weird stuff I was just kidding about there with a the purple color, like giving away all you own and so on. That isn't even that stuff isn't that uh, unusual. I mean, there there are uh, close parallels in the Cynic philosophy and among the Stoics and all that. You just have to reconstruct the uh, the cultural background for it. Uh, the even the thing about uh, loving your enemies, we find that in some Assyrian document hundreds of years B.C. Uh, the notion that God is your father, you find that in the Rig Veda, where there's this penitential psalm, and uh, the the singer or anybody that uses it uh, is uh, saying, "Oh Varuna, remember when you and I walked as friends, as father and son." That's the stuff we are talking old was uh, unique to Christianity and all that. I don't, or the Gospel of John, which I just love, uh, that is swarming with parallels from the Hermetica, Mandeanism, Gnosticism, Stoicism. I mean, it's not really a question here of who came up with it first, but it's, it just shows you that a lot of these ideas were were in the air. I believe in Philippians, you've got the the admonition to do what is in, what is right in the sight of all men. Uh, that implies, as Helmut Kester once pointed out, this is not some esoteric mystery teaching. It kind of like when Jesus just says repent, he he assumes you know what that means. Right? It's uh, it's not like he's telling you to do some crazy thing that sounds like a fraternity stunt. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's not like the, the idea that the Bible's teaching is so revolutionary that it defies the cultural context. Methodologically, that's very suspect because it's what I call dissimilarity apologetics. Uh, you want to maximize the supposed distinctiveness of New Testament teaching so you can make Jesus look like a revealer from beyond. But I don't think that works. I don't think any of the things attributed to Jesus are that radical. Uh, I mean, they, they may be, and they're morally very serious, but... Uh, it's not like Gnosticism, where the world is in absolute thick darkness morally, that it's just a jungle of dog-eat-dog -dog and the, the uh, war of all against all, uh, and uh, no one has uh, risen any higher on the Maslovian hierarchy of needs, right? But suddenly, uh, a light shines in the darkness, and that is the, the uh, shocking teaching of of Jesus, or if you want to throw in the Old Testament, Moses, and, and now for the first time we, we know what right and wrong, I, what, this is not in the Bible.
I admit there's some hype occasionally, but usually this is about uh, particular messages that you're not going to find on the evening news and in the prophets. Like, you know, it may sound uh, unlikely to you, but God is going to take vengeance on Assyria. You wait and see. Now, that's not uh, distinctive ideas, right? It's just a, a, you know, it's a Fox News alert, right? Uh, that's a whole different matter. And um, the uh, the uh, other than that, like the gospel in the New Testament is a revelation, but in the sense that uh, you here is something that, uh, and especially the the crucified Christ and the atonement, the the offer of salvation that God has made to mankind through the gospel. They're, they're saying something has happened that you wouldn't know about unless God had revealed it through his son and his apostles. But it doesn't seem to be morally revolutionary necessarily. It's just that uh, it goes beyond reason in the sense Thomas Aquinas would later say. The gospel cannot be derived from the static principles of, of reality, from the laws of physics or from the laws of logic any more than a fire breaking out in a store next to you is derivable from from these uh, unchanging laws. No, something happens. The Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, Osama bin Laden attacks the World Trade Center. You couldn't have, I mean, you know, if you had good spies and all that, you you might have uh, sniffed out the signals that something like this is going to happen, but it's not derivable from logic. And this is what uh, 1 Corinthians says, that the the philosophers, the debaters of this world laugh off uh, the, the gospel, the, the, uh, the message of Christ crucified. Uh, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we have to disappoint them. We, we don't have a philosophically derived theory like Platonism or something. Uh, and uh, it, it, this is an event that has happened, and we are sent as God's heralds to tell you. That's not Gnosticism. It's just a belief in revealed information, which would be in short supply. Like I mentioned Aquinas, in his arguments, or he would, he said proofs of God's existence, he says he, he thinks that uh, simple objects observation and reasoning about it would lead a fair-minded person to believe that there was a creator God of some sort. He said, however, I'm not pretending that's going to tell you stuff like that God is a trinity or that he sent his son to save us. That that stuff uh, uh, is equally true, but you wouldn't know about that unless God reveals it. Well, that's all I, I think is, is going on there in the gospel. Something has happened, uh, and and uh, you like, OK, it's historical record, they figured anyway, that Jesus died on the cross. Um, what's the meaning of that? Well, God has revealed it in the gospel. That wasn't just a guy getting killed. Uh, that was the redemption of, of humanity happening. So I hope I bored you silly there, Kelly. Thanks. Now, I think this is Lachlan. Yeah, I try to keep these things straight on my question page. Um, 
Uh, I'm probably worse at math than you are, so I'm not sure either of us can figure this out. If I remember my algebra, if a number is on both sides of an equation in the same way, you can cancel it out to make the math easier. Since I buy Paul's logic in Galatians that a psychic gospel telepathically inculcated in a way that cannot be distorted, you know, one directly revealed to him, not passed on from human sources, uh, it cannot be distorted, uh, this, that this is superior to a game of telephone where Jesus is a few steps removed. You know, Jesus said it to Peter and he said it to this one and the stages down the line, I got it. Um, so a direct revelation, more reliable, less liable to uh, distortion than a, a transmitted tradition. Okay. Uh, yes, that, uh, wait a minute. I also assume that what he is talking about in Corinthians is a proof of concept rather than an oral transmission. I guess that's 1 Corinthians 15. Um, remember, I told you as a first importance what I was told. Uh, yet that, yes, that does open the door to a purely fictional Jesus, but people have made it work. Or perhaps I should say a person has made it work, since I'm not aware of anyone major outside of Thomas L. Brody who holds a theistic model with a mythic Christ. In some ways, though, it seems to work better. It saves the idea of Jesus being the Adam at the end of time, uh, as per Paul's epistle to the Romans, we know that there was never a first human being, so rather than trying to insist there was, despite all empirical evidence, the way Ken Ham insists we do, we can understand Jesus as being a case study for what Plato wrote about in the Republic as an edifying myth. Uh, yeah, I think so. The other math question isn't an allegory the way canceling out variables in both sides of the equation is, but rather a question about six, six, six. I remember being at Ken Blank's apartment up in, uh, oh, I guess it was Beverly, Massachusetts, when we were both going to Gordon-Conwell, and we had a get-together of the old Wood, Hay, and Stubble uh, staff, our satire and hoax ministry. Uh, and um, we were going to see whose favorite pizza was better, and we were looking up the numbers of the various pizza joints in the area to order from, and one of them had 666 in, in the thing, and Ken said, Oh, pizza's the Antichrist! Well, if so, I've taken the mark of the beast pretty indelibly. Okay. Um, in revealing what Gary Fetka found out regarding how much of what we are taught about regarding a vegetarian diet as a result of medical evangelism of the, oh, there goes my screen, come on, um, let me start that sentence, in researching what Gary Fetka found out regarding how much of what we are taught about regarding a vegetarian diet is the result of, quote, medical evangelism, unquote, of the Seventh-day Adventists, and as such is uh, based more on the visions of Ellen G. White. I have to wonder if Nero isn't the end of the 666 story. There's a way of arranging the numbers 1 through 36 in a 6 by 6 grid, such that every line, be it a column or a row, will add up to 111. 
Adding up all the rows will result in the number 666, of course, since adding 1 plus 2 plus 3, uh, etc., up to 36 results in the number 666. This square is referred to as the magic square of the sun. I'm not saying that St. John the Divine thought that Sunday or the sun was the beast, but the Seventh-day Adventists seem to. I gotta admit, I don't know what to say about that. Um, there have been various theories as to what 666 denoted in the ancient world. Was it Attis or Tammuz? Was it Nero? Uh, my bet's on Nero, but um, I appreciate the info. I don't really, uh, as you say, I am behind you and, and virtually anybody else on Earth when it comes to the math. Fascinating, though. Okay, okay, here's another one from Lachlan. Uh, discussing the different layers of meaning behind the pesher reminds me of when I first heard of it and thought that someone was trying to make an argument that there was a deep relationship between esoteric Buddhism and esoteric Judaism. I'm not sure if this is influence or if this is an artifact of the way the human mind works. Ah, there, that's that's important. That's an important distinction. Um, it's the distinction between uh, dispersion and structuralism. Did people pick it up from one another as an idea spread, like the parable of the blind man and the elephant, which seems to have begun as a Buddhist parable, but passed on into Jainism and Islam, interestingly. Or is it just people reinventing the wheel because they got the same basic brains and the same basic problems in life, and they come up with uh, basically the same uh, smorgasbord of uh, philosophical possibilities? Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not sure if this is influence or if this is an artifact of the way the human mind works. In Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, there are also four layers of meaning. Aksaratha is the literal meaning, what you see on the page, and of course you're going to see this meaning in every sacred scripture. This is what uh, Pesher calls Peshat. The interpretation of it that is shared with other Buddhist traditions or with the uninitiated is uh, the Samastangartha. The secret meaning is called Raga Dharma, but this isn't the same as the real meaning, the ultimate sense, called Kolikartha. This isn't a perfect match, of course, because Darash isn't really much of a thing in Vajrayana Buddhism. In Pesher, Darash is pretty much what people do with concordances. See how the word is used in other contexts in order to figure out what the best meaning is. Sorry for the lack of vowel marks in the above paragraph. Any mispronunciations are entirely my fault and not that of the geek. Uh, I'm pretty sure without the vowel, with the vowel marks, uh, I wouldn't have done any better. Uh, hey, I'm also not sure any of this matches onto the method of the Methodists. I'm currently in an argument with a man who is dating a Methodist and is trying to convince me that Methodists are literalists. From my understanding, they're middle of the road, uh, not 
uh, let's see, not well, quote, well, that's just one person's opinion, the way universalist Unitarians are depicted, but not Satan planted the dinosaur bones to test our faith like some Adventists I've encountered. Well, uh, secret meanings are uh, probably ubiquitous throughout religion, and that's for two reasons. You want to make a bad text look good, which is how allegory was invented. The Stoics found the, the Greek scriptures, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the uh, the, the uh, Theogony, uh, stuff like that, to be full of uh, morally inappropriate material in a later stage when they were more sophisticated. And uh, so they couldn't really deny the importance of Scripture, right? especially if they wanted anybody to listen to them, so they allegorized it as a god, Zeus, is not just some celestial Ted Kennedy or Bill Clinton. Uh, he, he's, uh, no, that, that stuff about him impregnating women, it's all allegory for the divine truth of the Logos uh, taking root and, and flowering in the mind of the truth seeker, very much like the parable of the sower in Mark 4, right? Uh, that's what it's saying. I mean, the, the uh, stories are kind of crude, but that's a tip-off that you're not supposed to take them literally. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's really nonsense. It's just trying to... Uh, save face for the scripture and to say what you wish it said and then claim that that's where you're getting it. That, that's just ventriloquism. Uh, and, uh, uh, but the, the other major reason for allegory, or at least uh, like the es esoteric exegesis of the Kabbalah and, and other uh, systems, is you... you uh, you're in a tradition that says there cannot be further inspired scripture. So you want to see what else you can find in the accepted scripture. And so you come up with clever ways of squeezing more supposed meaning out of it by reading the text backwards, by converting the the uh, letters of a word into their numerical equivalents and adding them up uh, by uh, treating a single word as if it is an an, an acronym, uh, like uncle, you know, the United Nations, uh, whatever the heck it is. Uh, what what was Thunder in the great Thunder Agents comics of Wally Wood? It was the Higher United Nations Defense Enforcement Reserves or Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Supreme Headquarters, uh, International Espionage, and Legal, I forget, but you know what an acronym is. Uh, MAD, M-A-D-D, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Well, you can ingeniously figure out a sentence by taking every letter of a word in succession and making it the uh, first letter of another whole word, combining them into a meaningful revelatory sentence and stuff like that. Uh, it's immensely clever, taking passages out of context and sort of 
like, uh, you know, a ransom note in a movie. Uh, you take this uh, verse, this word, this phrase from here, another one from there, and run them together and say, now, th these connections can't be coincidence. Well, of course they can. Uh, and, uh, well, not even that. They're contrivances. But, like, the Bible isn't enough as it reads in the plain sense of it. You've got to manipulate it. And, again, that's ventriloquism, uh, it seems to me. Now, the, the uh, one thing you have to keep in mind is these are ancient ways of dealing with the text, even though they're not uh, what we consider literary analysis. But since they're ancient, you can't rule out the possibility that those who read Scripture this way might not have been writing Scripture this way. Um, um, the, the brilliant uh, Barbara Thiering in her books, which are laughed at by many simply because of their shocking uh, nature, she does venture to work out a system of verbal clues in the Gospels and the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and therefore proposes hidden meanings that you had to work for, right? Him who has ears, let him hear. Not everybody's going to get it. Uh, and uh, Christian Lintner uh, uses uh, uh, numerology and number sums to compare Buddhist texts with Christian ones, trying to show how the latter are based on the former. Uh, and at first, this kind of thing strikes me as far, far-fetched, but then I remember, wait a minute, the ancients didn't think that, right? You, you can't assume they uh, were as sophisticated in literary theory as we are. Of course, they're more sophisticated in, in one sense, just starting from different uh, presuppositions. Well, that's it for today's exciting episode of The Bible Geek. I thank you for showing up to listen. And I plan on doing another one pretty soon, and uh, whoa, pretty soon a... New Human Bible, but I gotta tell you, I'm really running short of material on that, uh, because, uh, not to the same degree as the Bible Geek, but I am somewhat dependent on, uh, listener questions and problems to discuss and, uh, requests about basic things in biblical study, you know, up to speed and all that. So I really do need your help. I could just start shoveling Bible geek questions on into, uh, the, uh, the human Bible. But I think what people like about the human Bible is that it does have a bit of a different format and I don't want to lose that. So again, if something basic you want to know about biblical studies that would be good for up to speed, if there are questions you have about about biblical prophecy, uh, if there are weird things in the Bible that you're surprised to read there, what the heck do they mean? That would be like our segment, is that in the Bible? If you want to deal with a particular apologetics argument, well, we have our apologetics is never having to say you're sorry segment, so please be thinking about that and help me out with uh, material for uh, the human Bible. I still have a number of... Uh, of pages of Bible geek questions, so I do that more often, but I don't want to run out on the, uh, on the uh, human Bible or uh, the Lovecraft geek, right? I just have a couple left there, uh, and um, I'm going to need more. So, thanks a bunch, and please do consider becoming a Patreon patron. Uh, I uh, 
have various things that uh, don't go out to the general public, stories, essays, grad school papers, um, and, and, uh, and of course, the human Bible. Okay, I'll see you next time, whenever that may turn out to be. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.